a kind of a throwback for you. Three games in two days, barnstorming the the Northeast. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've been able to see football in New England. And I've definitely been fortunate, I think, on some of these occasions that games turn out to be amazing. In all honesty, it's stuff like that on Friday night that really just gives me the adrenaline to keep going. So like on a night where I had two and a half hours of sleep, here I am in the recording studio because in part, I'm just so jazzed up by what happened at Endicott on Friday night. You are not the only one, as we will find out. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 of them, and we've had a podcast since 2007. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the only podcast directly from the folks, us, at D3Football.com. We are here every week all season because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write Around the Nation at D3Football.com, and Pat... Here in week four, we had several conferences that more or less took the week off. No WIAC play, no Centennial to speak of, no Northwest Conference play. But as we say, it's the biggest division of college football. Plenty of games to keep us occupied and entertained. And oh boy, did week four deliver. Man, everything happens in Division Three. Something this week in Division Three made national news. It wasn't even the first time that that actually happened. We learned this on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, but this is uh, Season 17, Episode 9. We're going to talk about Week 4. A week in, oh, you know, just the biggest win for a New England team in the entire automatic bid era. Going back to 1999, we have to lead with Endicott taking it to number 5 ranked Harden-Simmons on Friday night. Coming up later in this podcast, we'll hear from standout offensive combo Clayton Marenghi and Shane Elward. They'll be our guests for the Fast Five and much more. We'll talk about Grove City taking it to Carnegie Mellon. We'll talk about Augsburg surprising when it gets Davis Adolphus. We'll hand out our game balls. We'll break it down region by region, as we always do, and much more. We can't go any farther before we thank our sponsors, the folks at D3Photography.com. We've talked about them the last couple of podcasts. They are the photographer's syndicate, basically, that we hire out to cover a lot of Division Three sports, including Division Three football. So if you went to D3Photography.com today, you would see a pretty decent variety of photo galleries from around the Division Three landscape. Greg, you already mentioned the WIAC took the week off, essentially, basically. One of the uh, D3 photography epicenters is the state of Wisconsin. But you've got Albright versus FDU Florham. That was a game that looked very interesting. Uh, you've got uh, St. Olaf against McAllister. You have Catholic University against Alfred. And then you have St. John's against Bethel. Those are the games that you can see just from this week's play that have photo galleries on d3photography.com. Now about 30 galleries from games this season alone. Yeah, credit to those guys for being at Albright FDU Forum out in the elements. That's expensive equipment you got to take care of out there in the rain. But those guys at d3photography.com, they do a great job. You see a lot of their action shots on uh, d3football.com. You'll see them sprinkled throughout maybe your school's website. That's a place to go see 
crisp action shots of your favorite team. Maybe your son or daughter is playing in that game. And uh, a chance to, you know, get some real high-quality professional photography at d3photography.com. Pat, did you know that our listeners can use the promo code D3Football to get 10% off of their orders? They absolutely can. By the way, if you're listening to this and you're a fan of a Division Three soccer team or something like that, you can still use that D3Football coupon code. I know they have covered soccer games this year. And, of course, there's a wide variety of photos in the library. Are you a former player? Go back. I mean, there's... I know that there have been games shot since about uh, 2003 or so. I can't vouch personally for all of those photos being in the archive, but you should take a look, pay for a digital download, get a nice print that you can frame and hang on your wall. That is a thing that, you know, in the day and age of digital photos, having a frameable print that is high quality is something that uh, they can never take away from you. Visit the website at d3photography.com. And thanks to d3photography.com for sponsoring the d3football.com around the nation podcast. So I decided to take the trip to see three games in the Boston area this weekend. This one is the centerpiece, the spotlight. It is the only game happening in Division Three football on Friday night. And, uh, you know, Endicott is in a beautiful area along the water northeast of Boston in Beverly, Massachusetts. They've got a whiteout planned for the night, so they're handing out the white T-shirts. It's a night game. The stadium is kind of right in the center of campus. There's a huge buzz. And, you know, what I expected to see is not what we saw, even when, you know, the the sort of three plays of the game in which everybody was healthy on the Hardin-Simmons side I expected to see the things we are conditioned to expect, right? When a Texas team faces anyone from, well, regions one or two, and we've seen it, you know, when those regions match up deep into the NCAA playoffs, I'm not even sure there's been a Mary Harden Baylor versus region one game. Um, I'd have to go back and think about that, especially since according to the last week's podcast, I can't even manage to remember that the Mac is not in region one. My apologies, but uh, you know, Expect to see an excess of team speed, the ability to break away either into the second level or get around the edge. Endicott and Harden-Simmons only on even footing health-wise for maybe about three plays because Galen Glenn, he's the starting quarterback for Harden-Simmons, is a big mobile guy, 6'2 guy, got a pretty good arm. He gets hurt, hurts his knee on the third play of the game, comes out for a play, backup gets sacked, they end up punting it away. Glenn comes back in and he's never really effective. He is clearly not going to run the ball. His mechanics are all messed up because he can't, you know, use both of his knees, right? That is a thing that's a problem. But even with all of that, right? And also Matt Mitchell, who is the uh, stud middle linebacker for Harden Simmons, doesn't even make the trip. He developed appendicitis on Wednesday, thankfully not on Thursday when they would have been, you know, at 35,000 feet somewhere over the uh, middle of the country. So he doesn't make the trip. And then his backup gets hurt early in the game as well. But even with all of this, Greg, you know, through the first quarter, game is pretty even. Endicott scores. They kick a field goal on a quick change after a turnover because Glenn deeply underthrew his receiver and the ball got picked off and returned back into the red zone. 
But as this game progresses in the rest of the first half, Endicott's key receivers and their quarterback begin to take advantage of the fact that these two top linebackers are now out for Harden-Simmons. Harden-Simmons just basically cannot stop Endicott because they are taking... Endicott is taking advantage of these guys being missing. They're throwing balls over the middle that they're not able to cover. And then you get into the second half. Harden-Simmons can't stop giving the ball away. Wright throws a couple of interceptions. They go to a third quarterback. That's not helpful. Everything snowballs on itself and yada, yada, yada. 37-10 to is your final. Yeah, you. I know when you're at a game, Pat, you like to get down to field level and see the team's standing next to one another, you know, lining up next to one another. How how apparent was it to you early on that Harden-Simmons wasn't just going to out-athlete Endicott? Yeah, I mean, frankly, the whole, even in the first series, right? Even when we're going toe-to-toe with everybody who they brought and everybody who they intended to start with, not a sizable advantage in any way, shape, or form, right? It's such a small sample size. We're really talking about three plays, right? Harden Simmons was able to move the ball early, and they were able to move the ball a little bit while Glenn was hurt. And later, once the backup, A.J. Hawkins, got a little more acclimated, they were able to, again, to move the ball a little bit. But, man, no. No, 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 uh, no speed advantage for sure. Physicality advantage, not necessarily. I mean, Endicott is fast. Endicott's got uh, a lot of talented guys. It was a pretty even game. And a voter asked me this on Saturday afternoon. And my take basically was if Harden Simmons had been able to use all the weapons on offense that they had intended to, it's probably a pretty even game, right? But it's not what you would expect from number five versus a team that's on two ballots, right? It was never that game. It was not going to be that game even if everybody was healthy. And so the final margin of 27 points is definitely impacted by the fact that Harden Simmons doesn't have Galen Glenn at full strength. It's not the difference in the game. It is not the reason Endicott won. Endicott flat out is right there with Harden Simmons toe to toe. It was pretty impressive, frankly. Yeah. And Endicott, they've been close to this a couple of times previously in 2019. They led Wesley, 17 to zero before Wesley won with a field goal at the end of the game earlier this year, they led Ithaca 17 to seven in the fourth quarter before the bombers rally late to win here. The seagulls, you know, they jump out again early to a lead, but this time they really left no room for Harden Simmons to come back and steal a victory away from them. All right. It's just gulls. Once upon a time, they were the power gulls, but there's no C in these gulls. Endicott has earned that retraction from me. The goals. Endicott goals. Pat, this is a this is a huge building block win for Endicott. And it's something uh, important here that you cannot get this kind of building block win if you do not play these games. Endicott, they've taken the challenges as they've come along with Wesley and Ithaca and those opportunities. And now they've notched the most significant win for a New England team in what well, you know you said it at the top in the out of automatic bid era. And that starts in 1999, by the way. We also may refer to the exact same time period as the D3football.com era, but the polite term would be, or the non-us-centric term would be the automatic bid era. This game was the talk of New England at the other two games I was at this weekend. That included at the Bates-Tufts game on Saturday night, where, you know, this is a Nescat game. 
The national rankings don't necessarily matter to these folks. Certainly what the playoff picture is like doesn't matter to them. The back judge in that game asked me about the Harden-Simmons-Endicott game during a break between plays down in the red zone. People were definitely watching. One more thing. Actually, there will be multiple more things about this game, so here's an other thing. After games, you know, often teams will have their big team meeting with the coach on the field, and then they'll break apart into position groups and talk for another couple minutes, and then you get to talk to people, right? After this game, they go through, first off, big celebration, lots of celebration, then they get in line, they do their handshake, and then it's a sprint to the locker room, and the locker room is in this building behind the end zone, a relatively newish looking building anyway. Opens up with like a big garage door kind of thing. So guys are just running in at full tilt. I'm walking over there because I'm waiting to talk to people afterwards. This is how the things work, right? I'm waiting there and an assistant coach is just kind of waving me in and said, come on in. So I go in and, you know, Endicott coach Paul McGonigal just proceeds to give two minutes of post-game speech. That was pretty epic, and I asked him about it afterward. Tell us a little bit, if you can, just recapture any of that emotion of what you told your players after this game. You know, we tell them all the time. You know, I tell them I love them, I'm proud of them, win or lose. And these guys go out every day from the offseason to spring practice to, you know, they, they don't quit, they push through, they persevere, they do everything we ask you to do. They're good, they're, they're good players, but they're, they're better men. All right, listen. McGonagall severely undersells this thing. This is like one of the most spine-tingling things I've ever witnessed in covering Division Three football. So I've got a little clip of McGonagall actually saying that which he just talked about. Here's about half of his post-game speech, the beginning, and then the end where he tells him that he loves him. Unbelievable job from the start to the Greg, this place is packed. There's a hundred plus guys all just standing on benches, hanging off of lockers. My only eye view to this is I've got my camera on the tripod. I've got my phone on the tripod and I'm holding the tripod up at chest level so that the camera can peek over the top of the row of lockers and get any look at anything whatsoever. I was blown away. It is the sort of thing that makes it possible for me to continue to do this thing year after year which I may have already said in the cold open and if so I've just said it again it's worth repeating I think but yes that the the clip from the speech at, at the in the locker room after the game uh really really emotional stuff like it's hard not to sort of get wrapped up in it and and feel the same excitement that they feel I think it's it's cool that 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 room clearly understands the magnitude of 
the of the moment. They called it the biggest win in program history. I have no reason to debate that with them. Um, we said it's one of the biggest wins, maybe the biggest win for a, a Region One or New England team in the last you know twenty five years or so. Yeah, I, I recognize it, enjoy it, and enjoy that moment. And it really kind of is something that resets the narrative about Northeast football. I think. If you think about what the other big wins are, we're talking about the very short list of games that would even have been on the list previously. You got to think about Curry going to Ithaca in the first round in 2008 and winning a first round playoff game by the score of 26 to 21. And everything else is like close losses. And even that is a win against a region two team, right? It's not a win against uh, purple power and whether or not Harden Simmons is considered a purple power they are probably not by almost every definition of the word nonetheless it does not live up to this standard that Endicott said on Friday night Endicott not the only exciting game this weekend shifting to Saturday and a little closer to uh, to your own home base Pat Augsburg and Gustavus Adolphus exciting finish there yeah yeah it is uh, a game that uh, Augsburg led by a score of 21 to 10 at one point. They led in the fourth, 27-19. Gustavus scores back-to-back touchdowns, and you would have thought it was over with 22 seconds left when Gustavus scores to go up 31 to 27. And Gustavus had already gotten new life on that drive. They had had a uh, Hail Mary on the fourth down play to the end zone that was actually called with one of those rare defensive pass interferences on a Hail Mary call. So they get the chance, first off, to run a little more clock, second off, to get into the end zone. They take the 31-27 lead, and man, Greg Augsburg has done this before. Augsburg did it to St. John's a little over a decade ago. Augsburg has done it to Gustavus before, and it was a big kickoff return out to just short of midfield, out to the 43-yard line. A couple of passes, and then Cade Sheehan finds Tyrone Wilson in the corner of the end zone, and this is what it sounded like. 34 yard line at Gus Davis. Get some heat on it. Trips. Far side. Single receiver near side. Empty backfield. So this one's going to the end zone. Final seven. Here they're bringing a blitz. Back. He's throwing it as far as he can to the corner. It goes up. It's going to be caught. Touchdown, Augsburg. Incredible. How could that ball be caught? 34 yards. Last play of the game. Augsburg celebrates. Greg Augsburg is a program that is trying to get itself back up off the mat. I use this reference because Augsburg is well known as one of the premier, if not the premier, wrestling program in NCAA Division III. Uh, Derek Lamker has been the head coach now. They're now going into multiple seasons. He's a 1997 grad of the program. That is when Augsburg was at its peak, I would say. You know, Augsburg and Scotty Wiestendahl, who was, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that guy's name correctly, but a uh, Guardi Trophy guy, when they were at their best, it was at that point. Uh, And he is trying to, you know, re-recruit locally, recruit a little bit uh, differently than has been done in the past. And, you know, this is the first game against an opponent that you can really do some measuring stick against. They started off with a win against uh, Northwestern of Minnesota on in week one. Then in week three, they beat Martin Luther. They won those games by a combined total of 114 to 10. This is the first one against a team that is in the middle to upper echelon of that conference. Like if you're looking to be 
in the same conversation as St. John's and Bethel. You have to get past Gustavus Adolphus for sure, and that is what they did on Saturday. Yeah, Pat, I don't know if this qualifies as a reverse or an escape, but either way, Augsburg, big win, coming back with 22 seconds left. We we keep saying it, Pat, you can't leave Augsburg too much time. Yes, exactly, and I would make some sort of writing time reference, but it's it's not really helpful here. It's not quite the heavyweight battle in the MIAC. That comes up starting next week for Augsburg when they host St. John's, so that'll be fun. And then it got even more interesting on Saturday night. It sure did, Pat. At Grove City, the Wolverines welcomed number 14, Carnegie Mellon, and they used a tremendous defensive performance to knock off the reigning pack champs 21-14. to Grove City led this game 21-0 to in the third quarter before Carnegie Mellon was finally able to get some traction with their offense. The key play in the game comes with about eight minutes to play, and Carnegie Mellon with third and goal at the one. Scoring here makes the game 21 to 14 with plenty of time left for Carnegie Mellon to continue the rally. But Grove City stuffs third and fourth down attempts by Tartan short yardage specialist Joey McGinnis, the fourth, to prevent the score and maintain the 14 point lead. Wolverine defense limited Carnegie Mellon to just 278 yards of total offense. Pat, I've got more from this game a little bit later. We've been talking about the top of the pack. You can read a feature about it on d3football.com. Joe Sager did a great job talking to the teams that were at the top of the conference that we expect to be at the top of the conference. They are Grove City. They are Carnegie Mellon and also Washington and Jefferson. You know, I think we kind of expected that under Andrew DiDonato, right, a guy who came in as a coordinator, a guy, of course, who came in as a player at Grove City, uh, 2010 graduate, did think that uh, – you know, Grove City would be able to build itself back up. And obviously, right, we're talking about 4-0. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's not all that long ago that Grove City had three consecutive winless seasons, but uh, in 2018 and beyond, and I'll skip the COVID year because it's a, only a four-game season, but 8-3, and 9-2, and 8-3, 8-3, these guys have been right there kind of waiting to make this next step, and they've made the first of those next steps now. See you all met. See you all met. See you all met. I'm here with Clayton Marenghi and Shane Aylward, quarterback, wide receiver, roommates, and uh, victors here on Friday night as Endicott defeated Harden Simmons by the score of 37 to 10. I want to talk to you guys, especially about the first half. I felt like every big play involved both of you guys. So first off, um, you know, tell me a little bit about what it's like to have this guy out there in the receiving core to throw to. It's awesome. I mean, he uh, when he gets the ball in his hands, he makes my life much easier. And um, it was definitely good to get the ball in his hands tonight. A lot of defenses, they uh, they do a good job planning around him and trying to shut him down. But it's, it's really good to get the ball in his hands. I mean, it helps the entire offense out, helps me out for sure. Harden Simmons came in missing a guy right at linebacker, and then they lost a the guy right away. And it seemed like that left that whole connection open for you guys, that whole first half especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's our job to take advantage of that and um, just know what's going on. But I mean, our main our main job is just stick to the scripts, be resilient all half, especially the second half coming out because I knew uh, we knew they were going to change it up a little bit. But uh, I'm so proud of these guys just for staying resilient the entire game. Shane, react a little bit to what uh, Clayton just said first off. I mean, you know, being roommates, we've been friends for 
kind of the whole time we've been at school and uh, we've always kind of had the, the connection of you know we're kind of local guys so you know we work out over the summer and um, obviously that stuff's paying off now but I mean he's just a ridiculous athlete and uh, he's a guy that defenses are gonna have to kind of base themselves around him obviously being the quarterback and you know being the dual threat type of guy that he is and you know he goes out and he can beat you with his legs if they want to defend the pass and if they want to defend the run then you know he's got the arm to, to kind of air it out so it's kind of uh, a win-win for kind of the both of us. Uh, estimate, if you would, for me, how many balls that he threw you this summer, just this summer. Uh, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, too many to count at that point. But, I mean, it was endless sessions, and it wasn't only me. It was a lot of these guys, and uh, even guys that aren't as local, you know, they come out and, like, we want to work and we want to get better. And, I mean, obviously, this was an opportunity to kind of put our names out there and mm -hmm. kind of set the stage for, you know, what we're made of. So... Let me ask both of you about what it was like playing in front of this uh, group of fans here tonight because that was loud and that was impressive. It's a great atmosphere. I mean, especially Friday Night Lights, kind of bring it back to high school. But atmosphere is awesome. Fans are awesome. We had a lot of juice on the sidelines. That's what we're all about. And, uh, again, I'm proud, I'm proud of everybody. Shane? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, we always get all these fans. And, uh, you know, even in our away games, we get, guys, we get people that – want to travel and watch us play and I mean even when we're away it seems like we're a home crowd so when we're actually at home it makes it a little bit louder having all the students and uh, all the parents and things like that so let me ask you know a couple weeks ago right here on this field you guys had the lead at the end or not quite at the very end but you had the lead late against Ithaca you had a chance to make a statement in that game and that kind of slipped away did that was that any extra fuel this week uh, I mean not as much I mean that's just kind of it's just another game on our schedule uh, you know, we had some missed opportunities out there all day. Um, and, you know, we learned from our mistakes and we kind of capitalized on the things we missed out on. Uh, and, you know, we hold our guys to a different standard here. And, uh, I mean, we had high expectations going into that game. It didn't turn out the way we wanted it, but we just kind of spun it around, uh, took it to SUNY Maritime, and then came out here and prepared like a normal week. Clayton, what did you guys take away from that game? Um, I mean, like, like Shane was saying, um, it's a different team. It's a whole different team. We're talking about Ithaca. Um, there, we got. It's good to have short-term memory. Um, just put that in the past. It's a, again, brand new team, brand new game plan. It's, it's good to have a, a great week of practice and just and just have a great game tonight. All right. Let me ask you your take on on Shane throwing the ball. <laughs> he actually he actually had a couple great balls uh, this week in practice. I, I knew he was gonna. Eh, it could have been a little bit higher, but hey, he got the job done. Yeah. Uh, it was there. I mean, there was a lot of things that, you know, could have went a little better, could have put it over the top a little more and, you know, take the top off a little bit and kind of go from there. But, I mean, good job for, I mean, these guys, you know, the transition, uh, the pitch from, from Clay. I mean, it was right there. And, you know, the guys blocking up front, being able to sell it a little bit. And yeah. uh, obviously to Adam Goodfellow catching the ball. I mean, right. that was kind of a tough catch, kind of put it in a tough spot. But, um, you know, just kind of kind of went. I don't know. All right, when you guys are when you guys are hanging out at the apartment or whatever and not talking about football, if that's ever a thing, what are you guys doing? Uh, that's basically it, I think. Uh, you know, it's based around football. I mean, we're in meetings together all the time, and, you know, we get back, and, I mean, if we're not talking about our football, we're talking about NFL football, college football, like anything like that. So that's kind of how it goes. All right, I just wanted to know who has to take out the trash or do the dishes, basically. It's, it's usually a Shane type of deal. He, he's good with that, but uh, I think uh, I think I got to be be the one taking it out within the next week or two. Yeah, I'd say so. It's starting yeah. to fill, it's starting trash starting to fill up pretty just pretty quick bit. too. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> Clayton Marenghi and Shane Aylward, quarterback and wide receiver for Endicott. They defeated Harden Simmons tonight, along with the rest of the goals, by a score of 37 to 10. Thanks to Clayton and Shane for joining me for the Fast Five. 
that's a pair of seniors that have the maturity to not overreact to one game or one result. When you ask them about lessons learned from Ithaca, I expected an answer in the affirmative, uh, but really they just seem to have moved on. They don't dwell on that result from a couple of weeks ago. They really focused in on the next game. Endicott, Pat, is a very experienced team, though. You talked to two senior stars on offense, but Endicott's defense has been excellent for a while now. That unit started nine players on Friday that are either seniors or graduate students. They have talent. They have experience. It's going to be really hard again this year for teams in the Commonwealth Coast Conference to find points against them. I did chat with Hector Johnson and also Matthew Lachardi. You can find that on the game story on our website or on our X feed or, frankly, on our YouTube channel. We want to take a moment right now to thank the people who have kind of gone above and beyond to help support the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, support the D3Sports.com family of websites overall, and that is our supporters on Patreon. Patreon is a service that people like us, people who create content, people who create art, this isn't art, this is just content, I get it. People who create podcasts use to gain support in a financial manner from their network so it could be anywhere from like three dollars a month up to there are people who do give us fifty dollars a month uh, to support doing all the things me being able to go to endicott and two other games in the boston area this past weekend is not really possible if we're working just on ad revenue alone we know ads on websites are a bother we get that and if you block our ads just know that we don't get any money from uh, from them because you have blocked them but because of the folks on patreon we are able to do those sorts of things and others every season that's right pat our patreon subscribers help fuel all of the d3sports.com family of sites but during football season we see that support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage that our readers see throughout each and every week you get features columns around the nation on-site coverage on Saturdays or Fridays sometimes, the live scoreboard on game day, all of these things are made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage the site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. Maybe you're already a Patreon subscriber. Thank you so much. You can continue to support D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. If you want to learn a little bit more about how that works, go to patreon.com slash d3sports. If a one-time donation is more your speed, go to d3sports.com slash help. The game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. All right, it's time for game balls, and I am not quite done with the Endicott Harden-Simmons game until maybe now, because my game ball goes to wide receiver Shane Aylward, who was the one person that Harden-Simmons did not have an answer for. He went with four catches for 111 yards and two touchdowns, all of that in the first half. He also threw a pass, a 28-yard completion. You heard him and his quarterback slash roommate Clayton Marenghi talk about that in Fast Five just a moment ago. But this was the guy they couldn't touch. He had a 12-yard touchdown catch to kind of get things started. That was the first you know, full offensive drive, first offensive score for Endicott that uh, wasn't part of a, uh, you know, a turnover and a quick change. And then right away after that, the very next drive, he caps a 66-yard drive with a 51-yard touchdown catch. Nobody was getting him, 
And that really set the tone. It was 17-0 at that point. And it was almost at that point with still 39 minutes left in the game. It was almost already all she wrote. Pat, my game ball goes to Grove City quarterback Logan Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer accounted for all three Wolverine touchdowns in the aforementioned 21-14 win over Carnegie Mellon. Pfeiffer threw for one score and rushed for two more. His 20-yard touchdown run on third and 10, with just five seconds to play in the first half, was a huge moment in the game for leading his team to the end zone three times and securing a huge win. In the race for the pack title, Logan Pfeiffer gets my game ball. One last note on this one, Pat, with wins now over Case Western Reserve and Carnegie Mellon. Grove City hosts W&J next week, and a win there pretty much puts the pack to bed. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. It's time for stat of the week, and my stat of the week comes as Springfield beats Coast Guard on Saturday, 63-14. to so This isn't some attempt to play the comparative score game and imagine what a Springfield-Anna Maria game would be like, since, as you remember, Coast Guard beat Anna Maria 93-24 to and then lost to Springfield 63-14. to I think we all know how to do math, and it's good that we won't have that 156-10 to game. In all seriousness, it's somehow... Springfield still had a school record involving rushing yards within reach. So when that went on Saturday, Springfield rolled up 686 yards on 71 carries, beating their previous record by 10 yards. So the Pride had run for 676 yards in a game against Merchant Marine back in 2010. That is the record that they beat. 11 players carried the ball for Springfield. And as is sometimes the way in that offense, nobody caught a pass because none were completed and only two were attempted. If you're wondering about the NCAA Division Three record for rushing yards, it's 730 set by Maine Maritime back in 2009, also against Coast Guard. But Springfield on Saturday, 9.4 yards per rush. And when you are basically able to do that, you don't even get a whole lot of third down conversion attempts. But Springfield, of course, was 7 of 9 on 3rd down, and then they were 1 of 1 on 4th down. So they converted 8 of those 9 times. Pat North Park got 268 yards and 4 passing touchdowns from Matt Eck in their 38-0 win over Milliken on Saturday, but that is not my stat. Jaden Miller had 3 sacks and an interception for the Vikings' defense, which are also not my stats. North Park's shutout is their first shutout in CCIW play since 1992, and 31 years between conference shutouts should be my stat, but it is not. <laughs> I'm going one layer deeper. Combined with North Park's week one shutout against Manchester, North Park has now pitched two shutouts in the same season for the first time since 1968, which predates Division Three entirely. And that is my stat of the week. You can always count on Greg to dig one layer deeper in stat of the week. This is the time where we go region by region when we started this uh, region one through six concept last year, I pulled out six little audio clips that might help set the tone for each of those regions. So, and sometimes it's, it's always been something that rhymes, right? It's like, who's getting it done in the one, you know, who's blah, blah, blah in the two, et cetera, et cetera. Right. We're just going to go the literal version. This is the literal version this week. So for region one, we ask, I'm a real wild one. Wild one. Who's a real wild one? And it was a real wild one at Tufts on Saturday night in front of a crowd of more than 4,000 people who braved a little bit of rain on a homecoming night to see the Jumbos defeat Bates 44-16. to Who was wild? 
Chartellus Reese definitely running wild for Tufts. He rolled up 178 yards on the ground along with two touchdowns. Greg, this guy's a real good story. He's a junior. He had just eight career carries entering the night for Tufts, and he had played the previous game at linebacker for Tufts. He made five tackles against Trinity, Connecticut in the first week of the NESCAC season. In chatting with coaches after the game, this guy's story is pretty impressive, but basically this is Chartellus Reese, healthy and eligible for the first time in his college career. He showed serious athleticism for the D3 level on Saturday night, but somehow even more wild is the post-game ritual that I got to witness in the Tufts locker room, and I chatted with Jumbo's coach Jay Savetti about it after the game. The gong started in uh, 2014, right? We had uh, a 31-game losing streak here at Tufts um, three years in a row. That went in a game, won the first game the year before that. Um, I had an uncle who was a professional musician, percussionist, and I was cleaning out his house, and he was going to get rid of this gong. And is I, he going to tell you it's actually technically called a tam-tam? It is a tam-tam. All he right. told me that. Yes, right. yes, he did. And he... Um, he said, I could have it. And I called the captains that day and I said, hey, when we end this streak, we're going to ring this gong, right? So, you know, that was in sometime in the spring and uh, sat in my office, you know, uh, I brought it up to the team. It's halftime of the Hamilton game uh, when we ended the streak. And one of my former players, who's now a QC at, uh, with Minnesota with Fleck, said to me, hey, coach, where's the gong? And I went, oh my gosh, I could, you know, go out about one and, and, you know, completely forgot about it. And uh, we ran up, he ran up to my office, got it set up. It was on the same stanchion that it's on now. And uh, after every, after every win now, uh, seniors get to ring the gong and they have a little thing they do with it. So, you know, when you go through your time here, uh, you know, your goals, obviously senior year, you ring that thing nine times. And uh, I love the, the, the history and the legacy of it and the tradition, you know, guys get to come back and know. How many times? Ever. That's actually our fourth gong. We've we've gone tam tam, excuse me. That we've uh, that we've gone through because uh, because uh, they've knocked it out. Get it on, bang a tam tam. Offenses went wild in Bangor, Maine, Saturday, where Husson outlasted Anna Maria fifty to forty nine. Each team scored two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. But the game was ultimately decided when Anna Maria elected to go for two when scoring with 52 seconds left. Why do you go for two? Because the people love it. Anna Maria quarterback Ryan Russell found Tyler Belinsky. I think he wasn't identified on the broadcast, and Anna Maria has two number sevens. Belinsky made the catch coming back toward the quarterback from the end zone and was ruled to have possessed it finally just in front of the goal line. It really couldn't have been closer. This game had over a thousand yards of offense and great individual performances from Russell who threw for 539 yards and six touchdowns. Husson running back Elijah Garnett rushed for 159 yards and four touchdowns. Each of Husson's final four touchdowns. In fact, in the win, I'm going to give one bonus thing from the one since last week, I highlighted a region two story in this space. So I also saw Salve Regina at MIT sandwiched between the two night games. This was MIT's first conference game as a member of the new Mac and John Hannon wide receiver had a big afternoon or at least a big second half. Here's Salve coach Kevin Gilmartin's take after Hannon finished the day with four catches for 146 yards and two touchdowns. He had one target in the first half yeah. in the second half. It was like, come on. Well, I mean, his nickname is third and Hannon. So why are we not getting the ball to third and Hannon? You know? So, uh, I mean, then all of a sudden he starts to make some big plays too. And then, and then he had another one that, that was probably about a 20 yard gain 
where where he where he stumbled. Yeah, he stumbled. He would have he would have had another fifty yards on him. <laughs> yeah, third and Hannon today. Let's see. On average, his average yards per catch, thirty six and a half yards per catch, and uh, fifty seven yards after the catch. That's not bad at all. That's 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 pretty good average. I mean, that's like uh, that's like uh, that's like a Frank Rossi average in high school. You know, I mean, that's guys getting up the field. I mean, that's kind of we don't we don't get that very often where guys make plays like that. All right, Greg. Who in the two is making a thing go right? Union has a lot going right this year, Pat, including a spot on my top 25 ballot. You may have heard that through their first three games, the seven points allowed by Union did not, did not get scored on their defense, but rather a special teams run back. Montclair State did score against Union's defense this week, but just once, and Union cruised to a 43-7 to win to move to 4-0 on the season. That Union defense limited Montclair to just 175 yards of total offense. They intercepted the Red Hawks three times, one of which Jaden Duncan returned for a touchdown. Pat, you could say Union is fully charged as they head into Liberty League play next week. Charged in a garnet kind of way? The University of Rochester made a thing go right on Saturday, especially the two-point conversion in overtime number two. Both the one which you of our converted and the one from University of New England, which was stuffed. And speaking of taking two, it now takes two Poppentonuses. Poppentonuses? Poppentoni? Anyway, Daniel is the one you're probably familiar with. He's the running back. He went for 99 yards and a touchdown in that 29-27 win. But Aiden Poppentonus caught eight passes for 80 yards and a touchdown as well. Daniel's now a senior, and his brother Aiden is a sophomore. Greg, who in the three is three steps towards the door? Barry keeps taking steps toward the door with another dominant performance this week. The Vikings ran over center by a score of 49 to 16. Barry can really run it, Pat. We saw Josh Rogers have a huge game against Huntington earlier in the season. Saturday was Brandon Cade with 177 yards and two touchdowns. Rodgers had a more modest 52 rush yards, but he also found the end zone twice. Barry's offense has been impressive through the first four weeks of the season. That offense will get its opportunity against one of the best defenses in the division next week against Trinity. All right, so at Shenandoah, you've got Haley Van Voorhees taking three steps towards busting down the door, and she got into the game Saturday for the Hornets at safety and became the second woman to play in an NCAA football game at any position other than kicker. She showed blitz. Nobody picked her up. She got a quarterback pressure and a knockdown on the Juniata quarterback. The pass went incomplete, and Juniata backed up in its own territory, had a bad punt snap, go out the back of the end zone on the next play for a safety. Now, wait a minute. Right? Right. You heard me say second woman rather than first, right? That's because Taylor Kraut, a cornerback for Fitchburg State, got into a game on September 9th for the Falcons at corner in the team's 32-3 loss to Castleton. These are both big accomplishments. They continue to break down barriers and preconceived notions about women playing college football, so congratulations to both. But yes, Taylor Kraut, belatedly, we see you. Congratulations indeed. Pat, what's the 4 by 4 for in the 4? Sons, what the 4 by 4 is for. Could use a four by four either to haul stuff through a muddy field or maybe to provide uh, support in a joist somewhere. I don't do carpentry. Anyway, the four by four is for the 28 to seven win for DePaul over Ohio Wesleyan on Saturday. This game kind of strikes me as a very 1980s looking line score, Greg, with the Tigers scoring a touchdown in each quarter to win. 
7-7-7-7. And to top it all off, DePaul improves to 4-0. Nathan McHale threw for two touchdowns. Robbie Ballantyne scored twice. And receiver Gabe Quigley threw a touchdown pass as well in the win. And Hanover may have emerged as a surprise contender in the HCAC this year. The Panthers move to 3-0. They have wins over center, followed by big wins over Olivet and Trine. They've been a big part of the improvement in the HCAC's non-conference results this year, and they enter conference play with a lot of momentum. Quarterback Colton Richards threw for 412 yards and four touchdowns in Saturday's 38-14 win over Trine. Hanover's path to the HCAC title is going to take them to Mount St. Joseph and to Rose Holman in consecutive weeks later in October, so it won't be easy, but the Panthers are definitely challengers there. In this case, the 4x4 was for the fourth quarter where Hanover scored 21 of its 38 points to pull away. I don't know if we'll do the literal version of the region-by-region rundown, Greg, but I'm kind of enjoying this as now I ask, who's dancing to Mambo number 5 in the 5? Mambo number 5! There was a lot of dancing in the end zone in Waukesha Saturday. Carol won the donuts and the Golden Glazer two weeks ago. Saturday, they went for protein and ordered a 70 burger mm. as the Pioneers hammered Illinois Wesleyan 70 to 23. Carol just missed school records in points by six and yards gained by three, but they'll be happy with this dominant result and their perfect 3 0 record. Illinois Wesleyan drops to 0-3, 0-2 in CCIW play, and they look really, really far away from a time when they were part of a big three in the CCIW. They'll be dancing on Rippon's campus as Rippon gets its on-campus stadium finally as they open Hop Stadium coming up this Saturday against Cornell College. This has been in the plans for a long time. They have played in a city stadium, Ingalls Field, one which flooded back in the day. By back in the day, I mean... This is like maybe 2005 or so, somewhere in the automatic bid era. They had terrible mud problems at the stadium that were dealt with for years before they could finally cooperate and work with the city to install turf. This is a big deal for a school with 790 full-time undergraduates, and it's always fun to see people fired up about a Sunday afternoon practice. That's what happens when you can do it in a brand new stadium. Six feet, six, six feet, six feet, six, six feet. Pat, who accomplished a region six feet, six feet, six feet. Greenville is my team with a six feet this week as the Panthers are the only UMAC team with a winning record through four weeks of the season. This week, that win came at the hands of Adrian, which Greenville defeated 45 35. So right. Obviously no UMAC games have been played yet, but Greenville should be considered a huge factor in that race. And by the way, Paul Garrett is still around for the Panthers. He had 16 carries for 58, six feet. Okay, 116 yards for the math majors. Adrian Hinton busted out a huge day against the college he shares a name with. He got 18 carries for 207 yards, which beats the pants off the 16 carries for 32 yards he had against Eureka two weeks ago. Greenville is 3-1. and one. All I can think is Adrian Hinton looks at all these guys wearing Adrian lining up across from him. There's a joke there somewhere. Uh, we're just going to move on. Who accomplished the region six feet, Greg? Redlands wide receiver Evan Aguiwan caught a career-high three touchdowns in the Bulldogs' 38-21 win at Chapman on Saturday night. Tyler Tremaine had a good night as well, throwing for 270 yards and four touchdowns. Redlands' defense also pitched a shutout in the second half. Redlands' pad is out to a 3-1 and one start with their lone loss by just one score to Linfield. 
Chapman, on the other hand, is 0-2 in their best half of football in week one at Pacific doesn't count. So it is possible that these two could meet again in the Skyac championship game. They are in different divisions, but uh, early advantage Redlands in the Skyac. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. If you've listened to any of these podcasts, you know how this works. We put out the call on X, used to be called Twitter, to get questions from you guys that uh, we would then answer on the podcast here in our mailbag segment. And this question is from James Wagner at WagsSID asking, are you watching us? This was from Sunday afternoon, a game in which his school that he works for, Stevenson, was playing Widener and uh, beating them handily. I was watching on live stats and writing a podcast. The actual question we're running is from Frank Rossi, at Frank Rossi. You remember Frank Rossi? Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. He asks, as the pack only conference games season continues, do you think a 9-1 and CMU, Grove City, or W&J would be vulnerable should they need a Pool C entry into the playoffs? Is CMU on the outside looking in right now, in your opinions? I think anybody who's 9-1 would be vulnerable to Pool C this year. Um, there are just not very many spots, and it's hard to say exactly what kind of resume is going to be a lock. We're going to have some situations where we have 9-1s with, you know, okay, strength of schedule, maybe one-ish game against a regionally ranked opponent. We're going to have to compare that with some multi-loss teams that have played very strong schedules. And I have no idea how this year's committee is going to weigh that a nine and one team in the pack. Let's talk about that specifically. I guess my question here is one, the the strength of schedule for all of those teams is going to be around 500 uh, necessarily because it's a closed system. And then where do the regionally ranked opponents come from in the pack? Uh, Region two is loaded, Pat. You've got, Cortland, Brockport, Utica, Ithaca, Hobart, Union, RPI, Hopkins, Muhlenberg, or Sinus, and then Grove City, Carnegie Mellon, W&J. You cannot rank all of those teams in Region 2. And so in the absence of any non-conference play, how do you, how do you fit a bunch of pack teams into the rankings that would then boost the the primary criteria for a pack runner-up it's tough yeah this is a great question because the committee hasn't had to deal with a closed system in a really long time you have to go back to the first couple years that we had this automatic qualification system back in 1999 and 2000 when the iowa conference had 11 football programs and therefore played 10 conference games that didn't play anybody else I don't think that we can learn anything from 1999 and 2000. Um, those committees did things in a much different way, shall we say. I don't know if it's going to be as much even about what these teams don't have on their resume as opposed to what the teams they're competing with will have on their resumes, right? You know, we expect that the teams that are going to be in Pool C contention, the Pool C is that at-large pool. There are just four at-large bids this year to the NCAA Division III playoffs among the 28 conferences that get automatic qualification. So if you think about the teams that are likely to be in that pool, they're going to be competing with, they're going to have most likely very strong out-of-conference 
results to deal with. They won't always be wins, but I think they're going to have some good comparisons against each other. And these teams are, as you said, playing in a closed system. I don't know that they are. I will say this. The Pack coaches wanted it to be a closed system because they remember a few years ago when Case and W&J didn't play each other in conference play and they both ended up going unbeaten and they both went to the playoffs. That was a positive for the Pack. I don't know that that was uh, something to go away from and they're only doing it this year and next year, right? Conference teams are looking for non-conference opponents again starting in 2025 and 2026. But I think that this is what the conference coaches wanted They wanted a clear and completely understandable conference champion. And if that means that they ignore all possibilities of non-conference play, it may be that this is what they give up in the process. It's not a really good year to be in this situation when they're only four at-large bids. Yeah, and going back to 1999, also way more at-large bids in 1999. So there's a lot more room for teams in the tournament that did not win their league um only four this year it's really going to be even the most difficult that it has ever been to qualify without winning your conference the one year that is fruitful to this discussion is 1999 central and warburg both made the playoffs out of the then iowa intercollegiate athletic conference also a year in which the national champion was seated last in its bracket thanks for the question frank You can follow Frank on Twitter. You can send us your questions on X. Occasionally, I will forget what to call it. We're up to games to watch, taking a look ahead at week five. And my game to watch is Howard Payne at no longer undefeated and now number 18 ranked Harden-Simmons. Greg, I'm not sure if Harden-Simmons is going to be in any better shape at the two key positions where guys were missing and or where they went out on Friday night by the time the Yellow Jackets come to Abilene on Saturday. Galen Glenn, right question is his knee his mobility his ability to plant and throw all of those were in question in the quarter or so that he played after his injury on Saturday and Matt Mitchell I mean had appendicitis I uh, my assumption is because I'm not a surgeon that then the appendix was removed I don't know what the recovery time on that is for a college football player especially a guy who is going to have to hit people as a linebacker so I don't know what his status will be for Saturday But for Howard Payne, this is going to be a big test regardless. You know, whether it is against A.J. Hawkins, who has a full week to prepare, or against Galen Glynn, one way or the other, there's a big step up in competition level for Howard Payne, who has started off the season with George Fox and with Lyon and with Southwest Assemblies of God. So this will be a big change regardless, and it's definitely one worth watching. And Pat, my game to watch is going to be number four, Wisconsin Whitewater traveling to number 20, Wisconsin Oshkosh. When last we saw these teams in action, they were both in Texas where Whitewater staved off UMHB's attempt at an upset while Oshkosh was rollicking their way to a 60 to 70 win at East Texas Baptist. I opened the season believing that Oshkosh had a returning player situation that positioned them as a favorite to win the WEAC. Current season results have changed that a little bit, but Oshkosh has an opportunity here at home to get ahead of Whitewater where it counts in the standings. This should be a fantastic game and the marquee game in a great opening weekend of WIAC play. So we didn't mention the little brass bell game, but obviously that is also a game that is really important and really worth watching kind of in any given year, of course, 
But uh, I think this year, just as much as ever, now you're talking about number one North Central against number 10 Wheaton. Wheaton did not look great on Saturday, I think, when you talk about uh, them playing Augustana at home and having to struggle a little bit to get past them. I think that'll be an interesting question for them now coming up against North Central. Yeah, absolutely. Augustana really ran really well against Wheaton. And if you are struggling on run defense, North Central is not going to be a good time for you. (laughs) No, no. Joe Sacco seems to have picked up just fine moving into the starting lineup and running back. And of course, do not forget that Luke Lanen is an amazing running back as well as a really good passer as well. It'll be really difficult for Wheaton to stop on Saturday, and we'll have to see how that goes. Also in week five, we talked about uh, Trinity, Texas playing Barry. That is a big game, maybe the big game in the SAA remaining this season, especially as Birmingham Southern has fallen to the wayside. Here's the next game in this game number two of this three-pack in the pack. W&J, Grove City, they're both 4-0. Cohen Warburg, both 4-0. If you are a co-fan who's looking for votes for your team, do understand beating Central is good in 2021. Beating Central in 2023 is not going to get you the votes you are looking for. You got to beat Warburg. And, uh, you can understand why. Now, we talked about Augsburg. St. John's, I don't think St. John's will be sleeping on Augsburg now after what Augsburg did to Gustavus Adolphus. There definitely is a lot of repressed trauma among Johnny's fans about the way that uh, Augsburg came down with the length of the field, 80 yards and 18 seconds to beat them on their homecoming back a little over a decade ago. We've got uh, Springfield and WPI. That should be an interesting game in the new Mac. I don't know how good WPI's 3-1 record is this season, but... Uh, Springfield also three and one. Those should be some good games in the new Mac. And then six street rivalry game is not in week 11. It's being played now, maybe also in week 11. We've also got uh, UW Platteville at river falls. Another one of those games in the WIAC among the top six. I think there's a top six right now in the WIAC until Stout and or Platteville potentially get eliminated from that list. You've got Hobart at Ithaca in Liberty League play. You've got Muhlenberger to Sinus. There's some people waiting for this game. And we've got a Courage Bowl matchup coming up this week also. That's right. Really looking forward to, uh, you know, all eyes on that Tupac game at WJ in Grove City. That is my Keith McMillan, Jim Catanzaro hip-hop shout-out there. <laughs> Jim Catanzaro from Lake Forest College. <laughs> Coach Cat. Jim Cadden Darrow. Jim, glad to have you with us. My pleasure. I don't think either of us are qualified to uh, make that shout out, but uh, that's fine. Williams is at Tufts, but how about Williams getting blanked by Bowden on Saturday? That's around the nation. Good karma for the Bowden Polar Bears. Right. Time to go on the spot. Greg, I think it's your turn to go first. All right, Pat, here we go. Last week, Lion went from minus 85 in week three to plus 23 in week four. That's a 107-point swing from week to week for Lion. Pat, which of the following teams that lost by large margins in week four will have the biggest swing this week? Muskingum, who was minus 67 against Mount Union. They're going to be hosting Heidelberg. 
Simpson was minus 63 against Wartburg. They will be at Buena Vista. Rhodes, minus 49. They're going to, that was against Trinity. They will be hosting Southwestern and Dean, minus 63 this weekend. They will be at Husson. The first thing that jumps off this page is I really want to think about Simpson, right? Because I know that Buena Vista similarly is struggling, right? Buena Vista this season is 0-3. They lost to Warburg 47-rip. They lost to Gustavus 51-7. They lost to Lakeland by three scores. I just don't know that, uh, you know, Simpson, who has lost three games as well and has beaten Crown, I don't know that I get enough information from that to uh, go out on a limb for Simpson. So I'm going to take a look quickly at Rhodes. Rhodes, obviously, you know, this season they've beaten Austin College. They beat Westminster, Missouri. I don't think we learned anything from either of those necessarily. Austin College on Saturday went to Crown. I missed them. They were right here in my backyard in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. So I missed my chance to knock Austin College off my list, but I did take five teams and three sites off of my list this week. Anyway, I don't know that I take roads here either. So I think that as I just kind of work on process of elimination, I don't know about Muskingum either. Am I left with Dean? So Dean has lost by 63 twice this season. They've lost to Buffalo State by 34. They beat Fitchburg 33 to 17. With all that said, I don't need any of these teams to win, right? I just need them to lose by less than whatever. Yes, we're looking for the largest point swing from week to week. I think I got to go with Muskingum. Muskingum at least has shown some ability to maybe put some points on the board. You know, they played toe-to-toe with Capital. They beat Otterbein. They beat Capital. They beat Ferrum. I'm going to go with Muskingum, the Muskies, against Heidelberg, the Student Princes, on Saturday. Very good pick. I thought I was going to tempt you with Rhodes, but Rhodes also does not have a, it's a, like a minus 14 or 18 point uh, head start that the other teams have. So uh, interesting, interesting to stay away from Rhodes there. But uh, Pat going with the largest head start, Muskingum, minus 67 versus Heidelberg. And my game for you this weekend is called CCIW or CCIW. But it's yes, yes, IW. What I want you to do is take a look at all of the games being played in the College Conference of Illinois and Wisconsin this week and tell me which, if any of them, will feature the winning team doubling or greater the score of the losing team. The game is called CCIW. All right, so... I am looking for any of the CCIW games where the winner is going to double up the loser. Okay. All right. I am going to go first of all. Ooh. Okay. So here I'm going to say immediately. I like, you know, North park going to St. Louis to play wash you. I know uh, North park stat of the week this week. Great for them. But I think uh, that might get sideways on them at wash you. I think wash you will, Double up North Park at home. All right. I think I'm also going to go with Carthage at home to double up Elmhurst. I'm going to stay away from the Little Brass Bell game. That's a rivalry game. 
And I know that that could get very one-sided in favor of North Central, particularly if they can run as well as Augustana did. But Wheaton's got too much pride to let that game get super far away from them. I think that's going to stay within the double up range. Carol and Augustana, I think that's a good, I think that's going to be a good, a good competitive game in close. I don't think that one will get too far away. And that leaves me with Illinois Wesleyan and Milliken, a couple of teams that are struggling mightily to open this season. I am going to give, you know, Illinois Wesleyan, they did lose by a lot of points to Carol this week. I do, but they, they did have some really good offense. I think that they will uh, double up Milliken and get their first win of the season. So Illinois Wesleyan, Wash U, and Carthage to double up. All right, so last week, I asked Greg to announce winners in three games, mispronouncing them as if he were an out-of-state public address announcer asked to update the NCAA playoff scoreboard. And this is a triple ding for Greg. He hit on all three. Mass Dartmouth over Worcester. Hussin over Anna Maria, Shenandoah over Juniata, or if you prefer, Worcester, I believe. It was Hussan over Anna Maria and uh, Shenandoah over, no, sorry, it was Shenandoah over, was it Juanita? Junita. Junita, a new mispronunciation of Juniata. And last week, I asked Pat to order four games from largest margin of victory to smallest. Pat's order was... Albion with the largest margin of victory, Hanover second largest, Delaware Valley with the third largest, and uh, Redlands at Chapman with the fourth largest. Pat did not have to pick winners, by the way. Pat got two of these in the right place. Hanover had the second largest margin of victory with 24 points. Redlands had the fourth largest or the smallest margin of victory with 17 points. Flip-flopped Albion and DelVal. DelVal actually... Got away with the largest margin of victory this week with 28 points. Albion, 23-point winners over Wisconsin-Stevens Point. And Pat, the really interesting thing to me about these games is that I picked these games because I thought they were going to be close and none of them were. <laughs> not a single one of them. Uh, also, not particularly close. Any of the three games I saw this weekend, Endicott over Harden-Simmons by 27. Salve Regina over MIT by 27. Tufts over Bates by 28, a blocked extra point away from being a clean sweep of 27-point margins. How do we do in quick hits? Well, it was a good week for upset picks and quick hits if you're not a co-host of Around the Nation. Ryan Tips, Frank Rossi, Logan Hansen, and Riley Zayas, they all pointed at Carnegie Mellon as their most likely team to be upset, and it happened. John Carroll and Delaware Valley were our picks, Pat, and neither of those teams had much trouble in their week four games of the top five passing offenses heading into week four, only Hendricks crossed the 300 yard mark. They threw it around for 374 yards against Millsaps, Ryan, Frank and Logan correctly picked that one in our empire eight and landmark question. Nobody correctly picked a landmark team to win. Most of the steam was on Catholic to beat Alfred, but the Cardinals fell nine to six. I also picked Wilkes to win, but Wilkes fell to 0-4 at St. John Fisher. The group all liked either Brockport or Morrisville State to win for the E8, and they did. No sweeps for anyone in this uh, particular question. And lastly, I asked the panel, 
to identify a team that would give up more points this week than they have in the rest of their games so far this season. Logan and Riley picked Augsburg to give up more than the 10 they had surrendered so far, and the Gusties obliged. Wittenberg's 28 points exceeded the 21 that Alma had allowed, so points for Ryan on that one. Mary Hart and Baylor went way over McMurray's previous points against total, so that's one for Pat. Muskingum's extra point against Mount Union gives Frank a correct pick. I picked Union, who had given up seven. And they gave up seven, so that's a push for me, but I lost ground to the panel on that particular question. That landmark EA challenge did not go very well for the landmark, and I expect to see that represented when we get our updated version of conference rankings in a Around the Nation column coming soon, but not this week. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 335, released on September 25th of 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out on our continuing coverage all week, all season. We are very thankful, as we said before, for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. You can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. If you can't afford to support us with a financial donation, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum at your tailgate about the show, about the website. You can give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts if that's something that you're inclined to do because that helps other people find this show. We believe that that is something that still works in the algorithm. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X using the D3FB hashtag. I post from at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? You can join the conversation by registering a post at D3Boards.com and you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks and you can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. So many people to thank who helped make things possible this past weekend. Sean Medeiros and Paul McGonigal and all of the people at Endicott, Ken Johnson, and everybody at MIT, Kevin Gilmartin at Salve Regina for joining us, all the people who uh, we talked to at Tufts, including head coach Jay Savetti, and thanks to Jamie Chagnon. Jamie, I do not know how to pronounce your last name after all these years. C-H-A-G-N-O-N. I'm sure we'll get a P-101 on that at some point, but thank you for your support and your hospitality. Keith McMillan was the OG host and the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. We're super grateful for that. We're grateful that Greg Thomas is in his fourth season, not only as the columnist, but as the co-host. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Smooth, smooth podcast this week. It was a great week. I just hope that after having two weeks of, you know, podcasts that were basically right on the 60-minute mark that people don't, uh, you know, get turned off by seeing something that's probably going to come in somewhere in the 70s. If it's good, they'll come. It's like, you know, like the extra 30 minutes at the end of Avengers Endgame. We didn't need that. But this is good. Tomorrow we'll get that reference. I did not understand that reference. By the time you get to this, maybe you should just take this out. <laughs>